Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Ones and Twos Foreign Policies Economics Podcast. Every week we take two data points and we tell you how they explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's Deputy Editor, joining you from Berlin, Germany. With us, as always, is the namesake of the podcast, Adam Twos, in his studio in New York. Hi, Adam. Uh, great to be here. Okay, so the news data point this week is... 78. That's a number that is directly tied to the World Bank and International Monetary Fund meetings that are scheduled to happen next week in Washington. It's their big annual showcase. It's also a number directly tied to an ongoing scandal, one that implicates the current head of the IMF and a former World Bank leader. Kristalina Georgieva. The World Bank is saying that she wanted to raise the ranking of China, but this was coming at a time when they were in the middle of negotiations. This happened at the same time that she was pursuing and that the World Bank was, was seeking the support of China for a capital increase. So we'll get into the details of the scandal in a second. But what's clear is that this whole situation has thrust Georgieva and the two economic institutions that she's had a hand in running into the middle of the U.S.-China Cold War. The World Bank and IMF, right before they step into the biggest spotlight of the year, their big annual meetings, to make the case for their own importance on the world stage, they seem to have lost control of their own public narrative. But, I mean, first, I need to ask a really basic question. I suspect there may be some people who don't really know the difference between the World Bank and the IMF, Adam. Can you just explain that briefly? It is a crucial question. I mean, both these institutions, the World Bank and the IMF, go back to this famous meeting that was held in Bretton Woods, a resort hotel in, in New Hampshire in, in the summer of 1944. It's kind of a mythic moment. We should do a show about it, actually, at some point, because it was the moment when the Allied coalition fighting World War II, that is the US, the British Empire, the Soviets, the Chinese, the whole coalition, assembled to decide an outline for a post-war international economic order. The magic was not just the moment, um, this was the moment of D-Day and the Soviet breakthrough on the Eastern Front, but also the presence of John Maynard Keynes, the great godfather economist, if you like, of that moment. And the agreement was complex, the Bretton Woods deal, many, many clauses, but at its heart was the idea that the post-war world needed two institutions. It, it needed a development bank, the World Bank, to finance long-term development in poor countries. And on the other hand, it needed a shared facility to help all countries, rich and poor, to deal not with long-term poverty, but with immediate short-term crisis. 
So that's the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. So in terms of your own personal finances, it's the difference between the folks who lend you money to buy a car or fund college education or buy a house. And on the other hand, the credit card companies or a bank that offers you an overdraft. The World Bank is the long term investment lender and the IMF, the fund, is the short term to tide you over. Got it. I'm also picturing us doing a podcast from Bretton Woods now. I don't know if the resort is still active, but maybe maybe somewhere down the line. Apparently it's quite run down. <laughs> okay, well. But it would still be worth not. a visit, for sure. It would yeah. be haunted, yeah. Exactly. A haunted podcast, the ghost of Keynes, who knows. But what, uh, uh, again, to the meetings, let's start by explaining the allegations against Georgieva exactly. I mentioned the number involved is 78 so, Adam, what exactly does that represent? Well, 78 was the ranking of China in the World Bank's Doing Business Index uh, in 2017. Uh, the Doing Business Index is one of the most, or was rather, one should say, widely watched numbers issued by the World Bank. Think of it like a college ranking or a quarterback rating or something like that. It's made up of 12 different components, more or less arbitrarily combined. And the idea is to give it a measurement of how easy it is to do business in a particular country. This was a hugely important number. It was the World Bank's most widely used statistical product. It involved dozens of people at the World Bank itself, staffers, economists, and thousands of correspondents around the world annually compiling this index. And the problem was that after rising through the ranks uh, up to the position of 78 in 2017, over the summer of 2017, the World Bank staff began to compile the index for the coming year. China looked like it was slipping from 78 to 85. Not in fact because it was backsliding, but because its peers were doing even better in the eyes of the World Bank analysts. They'd upped their game. And that summer, the, the World Bank leadership, headed at the time by Jim Yong Kim and an American appointee on the one hand, Jim Yong Kim, and with a European number two, as, as what the bank calls its CEO, Kristalina Georgieva, were under intense pressure. They were, they were desperate to raise more capital for the World Bank. That means appealing to the World Bank's major capital providers. Number one is the US, but China is number three and increasingly influential. And so a disappointing number for China in the doing business rankings was the last thing they needed. And, and what happened next, at least according to a forensic investigation by a very high-powered, very well-connected Washington law firm commissioned by the current World Bank leadership, what happened next is that the World Bank leadership conducted a series of meetings all the way down the command chain to quite low-level technical personnel about whether these Chinese numbers they were getting, these disappointing readings, were real. There were also, I think undeniably, technical conversations within the World Bank amongst the staff about various options for calculating the index that would allow China to be given a more favorable rating. And the report commissioned by the World Bank from this law firm puts two and two together and alleges that the World Bank leadership, Kim and Georgieva, twisted arms within the World Bank to achieve a more favorable result. Just to clarify, the allegations here are that Georgieva and her boss at the time massaged the numbers of this index, the better to get on China's good side so they could get more money from China for the bank. Is that basically right? 
I think that's the upshot. Yes, that's the suggestion that this was an unwanted, uh, inadmissible interference in a technical process and the professional staff of the World Bank was subject to undue pressure to produce this result. So why exactly is this a big deal? I mean, is this really a scandal about the substance of the World Bank's work? I mean, does fudging the numbers of a ranking from 85 to 78 like pose a threat to the World Bank's credibility with experts around the world? Or is this really a scandal about the politics? I mean, is this the real problem here, the way now that uh, it's given an opening to politicians, including in the United States, who want to weaken international institutions? Obviously, this this doesn't look good, right? If you if you open this box up, what you see is Kim and George Ava looking for a certain result and getting it. And if undue pressure or manipulation were in play, that could be seen clearly as a breach of professional standards and codes of objectivity. And on Capitol Hill, there are going to be folks who are always looking for an excuse that, to cause embarrassment for the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, Congress is already up in arms about this, and the Treasury apparently is not only not taking George Ava's calls, but has made it known that it's not. On the other hand, I think one has to recognize that from the point of view of the rest of the world, this also looks like an American attack on a leading figure of global finance. It's an American head of the World Bank that has, as it were, overseen the production of this report. And it's an American law firm that has instigated this. And its target is a key figure in European international economics and finance, who is being accused of having done favors for the Chinese. So you can see the politics from that point of view. If you stand back and think about this, on the other hand, more as a question of, of expertise, if you like, there's a kind of constitutive ambiguity here in so many of our, the modern numbers with which we navigate the world. On the one hand, we need these to be absolutely authoritative, right? We need them to be unquestioned, to circulate. You need to know that the Chinese ranking is 78. It's black box, proud professionals stand by that kind of number then. And on the other hand, we also know that precisely their professionalism consists in constructing this instrument, manufacturing it, setting up the supply chains of information, if you like, that allow us to make this report. From that point of view, we know everything is made up. And on the other hand, we also know that in that decision making at every single step, there are technical judgments, but also political judgments being made. What we're seeing in this scandal is not so much a crisis of professionalism as a crisis of the balance of power at the World Bank and at the IMF. Yeah, this bears on the next question I was going to ask, which is whether the allegations against Georgieva, you know, granted, we don't know what happened, but whether they sound plausible. I mean, you're basically sounds like you're saying that international institutions are always under political pressure to massage the kinds of numbers they put out. I, I mean, what is the difference between doing economic research at a place like the IMF or the World Bank versus, I don't know, a place like Columbia University where you work? Well, I don't think one should be naive about the power politics that play into academic research, but it's certainly true that at a place like the World Bank or the IMF, numbers are a way really of coordinating relationships. They need to be meaningful. They need not to be sort of made up nonsense, but they also sit within relationships of power and the World Bank has entertained a very close relationship with the Chinese going back to the 1980s. China's huge. And if you're in the business of economic development or investment, which is what the World Bank is, they've been a success story like no other. So, yeah, they have to build a lot of dams together, which is what they've done. And if you fast forward to 2017 and 
then obviously the leadership of the World Bank is deeply concerned about what China thinks. The story right now is being presented as one of Chinese leverage over a weak and possibly pro-China institution. But if you actually read the legal investigation commissioned by the World Bank in the shadows, you actually see something else. How does this entire imbroglio start? And they start the report, quite frankly, by saying that at least one, they don't name names, but at least one major shareholder of the World Bank was thought to be on the cusp of abandoning the institution. So they go on to say Kim and Georgieva were preoccupied with achieving a capital raise. And she was convinced, as they report, that the World Bank's future and the future of economic multilateralism was at stake. And it was that underlying crisis that made it necessary to keep China on board. But of course, what the report doesn't say is that that unnamed major shareholder that was threatening to withdraw funds was the United States under Donald Trump, which started 2017 at war with global institutions. Huh. So, you know, all of this reminds me of the Bismarck line about laws being like uh, sausages. You're not supposed to ask how they come together. Uh, But I guess the same goes maybe for numbers from the World Bank. I mean, one thing there is not in this world is innocence. Mm. Um, Anyone pretending to sort of neutrality, uh, objectivity and the construction of economic data at an institution like the World Bank is, is naive. They are the product of a combination of intense technical professionalism on the one hand with complex political calculation which decides what gets published under what circumstances and in what combination we will be right back hi this show is sponsored by better help so there's something i've been meaning to get off my chest and it has to do with uh little league my son is on a uh, little league baseball team here in berlin and the coach is He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents. And I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, Pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. So from the World Bank meetings in Washington, we're going to jump to our next data point, which is from beyond the headlines. This one is also about China. Unlike the first data point, this one is indisputably true. It's 36. That was the life expectancy in China in 1950, just a few months after the Communist Party took the country over. Today, life expectancy has more than doubled. It's now 76 years old. That seems as good a claim to success as anything the Communist Party could cite. Yeah, I really think it is. I mean, life expectancy as a measure matters so much because it's one of the best ways we have of testing the overall circumstances of life of a population. It captures so many different effects, wealth, poverty, whether folks are living in sanitary conditions, whether they have access to health care and education, too, because one thing we know is that people who've had the benefit of education on the whole have much better ways of coping with medical emergencies. They become agents, if you like, in their own in their own survival. And the bottom line is that China in 1949, when the communists took over, was by any standards a country suffering from dire poverty. It was locked in several centuries by that point of economic stagnation and coming out of a crisis of the war and the civil war that followed. It was very, very poor. We think, roughly speaking, it was on you know, a dollar and change a day, something like that in modern terms. And today, yeah, absolutely. It's a high middle income country. The regime last year proudly declared the end of absolute poverty in China, which meant bunging tens of billions of yuan to some of the poorest, mainly elderly folk living in rural villages. That doesn't mean, of course, that China doesn't have a poverty and inequality problem. So about 600 million Chinese by any standard live on very modest incomes. But it's a huge change. So China has had this measurable economic success in a really short period of time, but its government seems to pocket this achievement, and now it's moving on to other bigger goals, more growth, dominance over supply chains, writing international roles, dominating its region more generally. Adam, why push beyond an economic measure like life expectancy in the first place. So there is definitely pressure on the Chinese regime. They react very sensitively to setbacks like price increases to inflation, to surges in the cost of real estate. They're waging a campaign right now against real estate uh, speculation under the slogan, you know, a home is something for living in. But I think they see all of this as you know, a chapter in a in a larger story. I mean, this is a regime driven by ideology, and we too is too easily dismiss that as simply sort of the book learning of dusty Marxist, Leninist, Maoist tomes. What it really means is that um, they see any given moment as part of a big national, broader project of transformation of China, and that's couched in different ways. So. It could be something popular, like the idea of the China dream, um, which she was pushing very urgently in 2014, 2015. When he took office as CCP general secretary in 2012, he inherited a specific mandate to turn China by 2020 into a moderately prosperous society, which was a goal they set for themselves for the anniversary of the party, the centennial, which was this year in 2021. And now the mission is to achieve, in their words, 
basically achieve socialist modernization, which is a goal they want to achieve by 2035, which is the level, they say, of a moderately developed country. So there is indeed a broader project into which each one of these steps is inserted, which is presented to the public, and I think also organises the thinking of the regime's leadership itself towards this endless process of modernization. Adam, I want to burrow down on this question of ideology. Uh, on one hand, the socialist ideology it seems to me like it may have contributed to the increase in life expectancy, right? It, it was an emphasis on equality, an emphasis on material gains. Th that was all informed by the communist ideology. And then on the flip side, this ideology also has international ambitions. Can you separate one from the other? Is this kind of like one package that you get from the communist regime in China? You get, on the one hand, an increase in life expectancy. On the other hand, regional aspirations of domination. The contrast with India brings out quite clearly the significance of the socialist ideology of development in China in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Very similar life expectancy in 1950, not so much today, right? There is the Indian life expectancy doesn't, hasn't quite reached 70. So a big gap opened up between those two giants of Asia um, after independence in the Indian case and the communist takeover in China. The gap to India gapes most you know, strikingly in the 50s and 60s when the Maoist regime really did extend basic public health to the, the vast majority of the Chinese population and basic education to the vast majority of the Chinese population. And that is in stark contrast to India early after independence there. Chinese economic growth is also somewhat more rapid than that of India. And that is an effect of ideology. I think we have to take ideology not just as a sort of set of ideas or, you know, a little red book that people would wave around, but as a set of practices, people, things that people did and priorities they set. As to the foreign ambition, I mean, I think, again, we should be, you know, should put things in historical context. I mean, the external foreign ambitions of China were much greater, much more radical and indeed at times violent under Mao than they are now. China was a, you know, a sponsor of global revolution in the 50s and 60s and after all went to war with the United States and the United Nations in North Korea and Korea. So it was a far more ambitious actor at that point. What we're seeing now is something far more conventional, I would say. I mean, it's a, it's a great big, vast, the biggest nation state in the world, which has grown more rapidly than any other equivalent power. And unsurprisingly, this shifts the balance of power and, and you know, the Chinese would have to engage in acts of spectacular self abnegation, really, to um, to avoid shifting the balance of power in their region. So, yes, right now there is, is that kind of dynamic going on. It isn't as tightly coupled as it was in the era of Maoism to the domestic project, though. The, the two are much more dissociated than they were in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could take this whole question of ideology and flip it back on the United States, right? Uh, look, obviously, the United States is an advanced economy. You're not going to be able to double life expectancy when you're starting from 78 years old, which is the average life expectancy in America right now. But it does raise the question of how can the U.S. government justify itself to its people. I mean, China has this amazing example of, of what it's done for its people in very clear material terms. What can the U.S. government offer? What can it tout to its people uh, beyond just kind of overall growth in GDP? Uh, you know, that's a pretty abstract number. What, what, what can it kind of give as a more material example? 
Well, it's, it's an urgent question indeed, because um, the story of American life expectancy in the last decades is a scandal, frankly. In 1965, the US had a life expectancy of about 70, which was very similar to that of Japan at the time. You might ask why, and it's probably to do with the extraordinarily healthy diet the Japanese eat. But starting from 70 in 1965, by 2018, the, the year for which we've got the most recent comparable numbers, in the US, um, life expectancy was 78 and a half, where we are now. And in Japan, it was 84, over 84 years. So a gap has opened mm. up between Japan and the United States. In fact, South Korea, which in 1950 was a war-torn, desperately impoverished former colony of the Japanese, now has a significantly higher life expectancy than the United States. In fact, the United States has the worst life expectancy performance of any rich country in recent decades. It's gone from being a world leader to being a laggard amongst the so-called advanced economies. And for the worst off Americans... And the trends are all in the wrong direction. It's not that, as it were, we're kind of butting up against some sort of ceiling at 78. Mm. The, the life expectancy is, is declining. This is the story, of the famous story of um, Case and Deaton, the, the deaths of despair narrative. Um, it's a little hard to track life expectancy uh, over the entire lifetime because this is a story that's happening quite recently. It's happened really since 2000 and urgently since 2010. But if you look at mortality, if you look at deaths amongst particularly uh, working class white Americans, both men and women and black men, what we see is a surge in mortality in recent years. So far from heading in the right direction and having somehow, as it were, reached the envelope of what is possible, America is hugely underperforming in the life expectancy stakes. Oh, that's really interesting, Adam. I mean, sure, the United States has two years on China's life expectancy, but why are we comparing the United States to China to begin with on this? You know, we all all gotten used to thinking of China as the economic competitor for the United States. But on this question, it sounds like you're pointing out, and it makes sense, I mean, it's a scandal that America's life expectancy hasn't increased compared to the countries that we used to think of as America's peers. Oh, absolutely. It's a sign of the times historically that that should be the comparison, whereas the truly sophisticated advanced economies are well ahead. And, and you could say that that um, shows up in the way in which many of these societies dealt with the pandemic in 2020. Well, yeah, hopefully the Biden administration can turn around some of these trends. And, you know, Biden himself... He's over the average life expectancy in America to begin with, so maybe that's something the U.S. could tout on the international stage. Our president is older than yours and still doing a pretty good job. All this from the number 36, just to remind you, that's where we started. We toured the world, and we'll leave it there. That does it for another episode of Ones and Twos. I'm Cameron Abadi. And I'm Adam Twos. Our podcast is a production of Foreign Policy. Our show is written by me and Adam and edited by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Dan Efron is the executive editor for podcasts at FP. We're a few weeks into this. We're already getting great responses from folks online. Keep it coming. We're starting to get great listener ideas through our email account. That's podcasts at foreignpolicy.com and through Twitter as well. Either way, always make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple 
or your favorite podcast app. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.